Heavenly Father, would you turn our hearts to you tonight as we, as we gather, Lord, in remembrance of the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus. Not even the begrudging sacrifice, Lord, but the intentional one. He had a choice, and he chose the cross. Father, may we wrestle tonight with the reality of Jesus' death with the pain and sting of death, the disappointment of those who were following him, Lord, so that we may walk into Easter Sunday fully, fully prepared to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. So have a seat. It's good to see you all here tonight. Thanks for, uh, thank you for being here. I, you know, we, we talk often, uh, I've talked often about this, and it uh, feels uh, somewhat, I will say, I don't, I don't want to say strange, but it feels uh, somewhat out of place to be in church, and we're so, you know, we're so accustomed to um, consistently you know, time and time and time and time again proclaiming um, the hope that is found in Jesus and the new life that is found in Jesus and uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus and the victory over the grave um, that the Father um, gave, to, gave to Jesus. And, and so we're, we're almost always celebrating and full of hope and with, of course, it, it could not be more appropriate um, but there is, there is a part of our, there's a part of our walk with Jesus and a part of the, the part of the power that is in the celebration of the resurrection is a seed that is planted on this Friday, tonight. Right? And so, so the, the fruit that we get to eat on Easter Sunday is because of the seed that is planted tonight. Yeah. Um, I often said, I think I said it last week, last Sunday in, in worship, that uh, for, for most of us, the image of the cross that hangs in our, in our churches, and maybe you have a necklace or a piece of jewelry or a tattoo or whatever, it is like the cross, we, we post it all over the place because it it for us, for Christians, becomes it's a sign of life, right? And victory and hope and encouragement. And we see it and we're we're drawn to it and it creates um, a a it creates emotion in us, right? Uh, but as Jesus was carrying, literally carrying the cross piece that he would be hung on, and as his disciples were watching the whole thing unfold, and as those in the city of Jerusalem on that day were seeing what was happening and were used to um, you know, Roman occupation. They did not see the cross like we see the cross as a symbol of life and a symbol of hope and a symbol of um, like Jesus' victory. They, they saw it for what it was then, and it was a symbol of death. And they wouldn't get all these warm, fuzzy feelings about it. It would be like you and I getting a necklace and hanging it around our, our neck or getting a tattoo 
of a coffin. Something that for us is a symbol of death. Right? We, look at, we, look at it, um, we look at a symbol like this and we don't see life. We see darkness and we see death and the, the, the image that we get of the contents even, right, are not something that brings sentimentality. They bring despair, right, and anguish and hurt. And uh, apart, from, apart from, you know, like being a, a Debbie Downer all the time, as we, as we preach the ministry and life and example of Jesus, um, we must wrestle with the reality of death. We must, we must grab hold of it. We must, we must ask the questions about it. We must, wrestle with, we must wrestle with the death that mattered most, or the death of Jesus. Um. The last couple of weeks here at Conduit, we've been walking through the last couple of days and weeks of Jesus' life, and getting a picture of what he would experience and had experienced, and, and understanding how he was preparing those around him for his death, and how those around him were reacting to the reality of his death, and, and as we come into Friday, right, so if you're, if you're like keeping track of the, the timeline last night, Jesus would have had the Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, and they shared that meal, and then Judas went off to betray him. Like He washed the disciples' feet, right? Had one more good night of sleep, maybe, maybe not. And then woke up on Friday with his face sent, uh, you know, his, his face like flint, his posture towards Jerusalem, knowing that as he would come into the city that night from Galilee, that it would be what was, what was about to come. And so on that day, on that, when, when finally all that Jesus had been predicting and telling his disciples was going to happen, finally on that day when it did happen, what then would Jesus experience? Like, what is the reality of the experience that he had the last day, essentially, of his, of his life. We know what he did Thursday. We know what he did the weeks before. We know the conversations he had and the ministry that he did. But what about this day? What was Jesus experiencing? What was Jesus going through? We're going to look at a few of those things tonight because it helps, helps us to frame what Jesus does on the cross. In Mark, Mark's Gospel, um, in and around chapters 14, uh, 15, and 16, we see exactly what Jesus goes through in this last day in particular. He uh, entered into uh, the, a garden, a garden by the name of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, verse 32, Mark says this, and said, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. 
And he took Peter, James, and John along with him. And you get this, you get this sense that Jesus was um, in a moment where he was ready to be more vulnerable than he had been in the past with those that were closest to him. And he says to Peter, James, and John, or it, the, Mark says that he becomes deeply distressed and troubled. And he says this to, to them, he says, My soul, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said, stay here and keep watch. It was a way of him, it was a way of him asking his disciples to pray with him. Keep watch. Pray with me. Going a little further, he says, it says, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, this hour, this experience, this task might pass from him. Abba, Father, he says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Take it away. I don't want to experience this. I don't want to go through this. I am not, this was not something that Jesus was skipping into Jerusalem to experience, right? Like he was going to not feel any pain, not feel any abandonment or shame or mocking. He did not want to in his flesh go through with it, but then he he says one of the most famous things that Jesus says, yet not what I will, Father, but what you will. Like, Lord, if, if this would be your, your, if this is the way, if it must happen like this, if, if I must experience this, then not what I will, Lord, not what I want, not my plans, not my desires, not my fears or anxieties, but what you want, I will do it. He went back to his disciples, it said in verse 37, he found them sleeping. Are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Like, hey guys, I really need some support. Really need some prayer. I mean, literally, like, think about, think about someone close to you coming to you and saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. My soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. Please pray with me. And the, like the, the anchor of emotion that that would have held you in prayer, right? My soul is overwhelmed so much so that I, I, like, it is going, the grief, the sorrow is going to take me. Pray with me. So Jesus was expressing his fear, his distress, his anxiety, his being emotionally, physically overwhelmed in this moment, committed to the Father's plans, yes, but asking, Lord, if there is any other way, please make there be another way. And you think, well, okay, if i got to go through something hard, at least I can go through this hard thing with the people closest to me. But as we see, the next thing that Jesus would experience was betrayal. So he's experiencing extreme sorrow, being overwhelmed to the point of death, and the next thing he comes to experience is betrayal by those who were closest to him. The first person that we see that betrays Jesus is clear is Judas. In Mark 
chapter 14, verse 43, it says, Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared, and with him was a, uh, was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. And the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And so he was betrayed by one, uh, take the 12 closest people in your life and say, okay, one of them is going to betray you. Not just betray you by saying something mean to you, but hand you over to a mob. And then uh, later in the same in the same in the same chapter, um, not not just someone in his inner circle, but someone in his inner inner circle, probably his best friend, his closest confidant, Peter, uh, the the disciple, and later to be the apostle, Peter claims to um, to, to not even know who Jesus is. Imagine the person close to you, closest to you in your moment of. In your moment of need, in your moment of pain, in your, over, in your moment of stress and anxiety and, and needing support more now than ever, being like, well, yeah, I don't even know them. I, I mean, I don't, yeah, they're going through, I don't know them. Never heard of them before, never seen the person, don't know their name, don't know what you are talking about. And so Peter did. Peter betrayed him. Jesus, uh, or it, and as Jesus was being arrested, it wasn't just Judas first. It wasn't just Peter who disowned, but now it was now everyone else. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus says in verse 48 of Mark chapter 14, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me, but scriptures must be fulfilled in verse 50. And then... Everyone deserted him and fled. Jesus was abandoned. He was abandoned emotionally in his moment of grief and pain and stress and being overwhelmed. And now he was abandoned and deserted practically and actually. Everyone that was close to him either gave him over to be arrested, denied ever knowing him, or fled and deserted him in his Greatest moment of need. The next thing that Jesus would come to come to experience on that night was being subjected to an unjust, secret, uh, governmental, religious trial where he was put on trial for the things that he said and the things that he did. And if you read the accounts here in Mark and in other places, you will see that not, Jesus was not just put on trial, but he was, um, in all, for all intents and purposes, railroaded towards a certain end. They had, they had decided before they even walked in the room what was to be of him. They lined up people to, to provide false testimony against Jesus. Mark chapter 14, verse 55 through 59, for instance. The chief priests, the 
whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. And then some some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days we'll build another not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. And so Jesus was 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 railroaded in this in this trial by his um, by the Jewish leaders, and thinking that maybe he could get some justice even from Pilate, the Roman ruler of the time, was not so either. Pilate showed incredible indifference to the injustice of the man that was brought before him, so much so that it almost seems. Like in, um, in Pilate's, uh, in, in the account of Pilate here in Mark chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually would do. And so you get this sense or this feeling here that you know where where Pilate is given the the freedom to let go of one prisoner that they have control of here um, during the Passover week, during the Passover feast. And how almost almost sarcastically Pilate's like, "Well, do you want me to I can give Barabbas, I can release Barabbas?" who is a, a, a murderer in the midst of a political insurrection, or I can, I can release Jesus to you. And there's almost this sense where Pilate's like, there's no way that they're going to say Barabbas. Yeah, give us back Barabbas. Well, the crowd does. They say, no, we want Barabbas. You keep Jesus. And in, a, in this, like, absolute show of the depths of human depravity when Pilate has an opportunity to be a just leader and ruler and let go of Jesus rather than let go of a murderer he in a you know in the midst of his just indifference to justice he lets go of Jesus or he lets go of Barabbas and keeps Jesus and says fine go do with him what you will. Crucify him if you must. Just whatever. The absolute injustice that Jesus must have experienced. That now, I, I'm, I've been overwhelmed to the point of death. Everyone has deserted me. I, you know, like, being railroaded through this system where false testimony, false witnesses, the injustice of those who are supposed to be protecting um, justice... And if it weren't enough, Jesus was then shamed, mocked, and ridiculed. We have several examples here in um, Mark chapter 14 and 15. First in Mark 14 chapter or verses 64 and 65. 
The chief priest of the high priest said, You have heard the blasphemy all. What do you think? And says they all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some, some began to spit at him. They, they blindfolded him. They took away his ability to see. And then they struck him with their fists. And they said, Hey, you, hey, prophesy now. Go ahead and go ahead and go ahead and speak now. And the guards took him and beat him. In chapter 15, after being dealt with by Pilate, it says that the soldiers mocked Jesus. The Roman soldiers led Jesus away into the palace in verse 16 and called together the whole company of soldiers. So they called everyone into the room, right? They called the whole company of soldiers into the room and they put a purple robe on him. And they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. These were not things of, these were not gifts of endearment. They were, they, were, they were mocking his profession to be a king by giving him a crown, except it was made of thorns, and throwing a purple robe on him, which was the sign, which was the color of royalty. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And then when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, and then they led him out to crucify him. If it was not enough to be mocked by his own religious leaders and then to be mocked by the soldiers who would kill him as he was hanging on the cross he was mocked by those walking away you see um, the the Romans uh, they were experts on killing people they were experts on executing people and uh, they executed people by crucifixion not because it was a particular particularly efficient or quick way to get rid of their enemies. But because it was not efficient and quick at all, in fact, it often took several days for people hanging on the cross to actually die. Um, but what it did was it sent a, uh, it was a form of psychological warfare where they could take those who had opposed the Roman government, hang them in the public, strip them naked, and allow them to die a horrible death on a cross, all the while people walking by them throughout, their throughout the day, mocking and shaming the people, insulting them, spitting on them, calling them names as they were on the cross. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, why don't you come down from the cross and save yourselves now? And so, all the way through, he was shamed, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was made to be a criminal and the worst of, the, of society, and then finally, he was 
actually nailed to the cross. He was actually crucified. After going through all of that in Mark chapter 15, verse 25, it says it was the third hour when they crucified him. And they crucified him with two thieves, one on his right and one on his left. Those who crucified him also heaped insults onto him. As said before, um, crucifixion was, was not meant to be a, a quick or efficient way of executing a prisoner or a criminal, but was meant to be a slow, painful, suffering way. In fact, we often think that people who were crucified um, died because of their, the, the, the trauma injuries, you know, the, the bleeding, the, the beating. But uh, actually, the, the, the biology or the mechanics of crucifixion were that most of your weight hung on your wrists. And so over time, uh, you, would, you would suffocate because you would have to lift yourself up in order to breathe. Your diaphragm couldn't lift your whole body up. And so after you got tired, too tired to lift yourself up or it became too painful, you simply hung there and, and your diaphragm no longer had the ability, the strength to move air into your lungs, and so you would literally suffocate to death slowly over time. We know that Jesus was on the cross for approximately six hours before he died, and we don't know why he died so quickly, but we know that he died quickly. And what happened at the end here in Mark chapter 15, verse 33 in following is this. It says, At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think about what Jesus has just experienced, even in the last 12 hours. Already the anticipation of a horrible experience coming and then the betrayal and desertion by those who said that they loved him the most and then being subjected to an unjust and secret trial and then being shamed, mocked, and ridiculed and then being nailed to a cross and suffering under the physical torture of crucifixion and then, and then in his last moments he cries out this deep, guttural um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is, this, it is this intense question to God of, hey, where are you? Where are you? Where have you gone? Why have you, why have you turned your back on me? All of this that I have experienced, why have you forsaken me in this moment? And who could reasonably blame him for asking such an honest question given what he had experienced? Where are you, Lord? Where are you, Father? I feel abandoned. I feel forsaken. I feel completely alone. 
interestingly enough, what Jesus says is not the first time that we see that said or hear that saying. In Psalm chapter 22, the, we, we believe that Jesus was quoting from Psalm 22 when he said this, these words. And Psalm 22 is, is quite long. It's 31 verses. We're not going to read it all tonight. But to understand what Psalm 22 was and how it functioned and still functions. The very first line of Psalm 22 is exactly what Jesus said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. If you go on to read the rest of the psalm, you'll see that the whole psalm declares the suffering of this righteous person, this righteous individual. And they ask the Lord, they seek from the Lord this, this, this vindication for the suffering that they're going through. Lord, don't leave me like this. Come to my rescue. Save me in my hour of trial. But, but at the same time, pronouncing the the emotional state of their suffering as, as having been felt like they were abandoned in that, in that moment. And the truth is, often uh, we feel abandoned as well. We feel forsaken. We experience various times and seasons of our Lives where it feels like wave after wave after wave of loss, wave of despair, wave of pain, wave of anxiety, wave of sickness comes crashing over the bow of our life. And we may be standing in the same place emotionally that Jesus was standing that night asking the Lord, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Where are you? Are you here at all? And if we're quite honest with ourselves, and if I'm honest with myself, you can be honest with yourself, we sometimes may even become so accustomed to those waves crashing over the bows of our lives that we begin to believe that the darkness that we experience on a day-to-day basis is just like, it's like the final condition or final reality of our life. This is just how it is. Right? You ever say that to yourself? Hear someone else, this is just my life. This is, you know, this is just the lot in life that God has given me. This is just how it's going to be for me. It's just always going to be hard. And it's always going to be painful. And it's always going to be dark. And I'm always going to be, I'm always going to be struggling to, to feel like God has abandoned me or left me or forsaken me or feel all alone or all abandoned or all in pain or all the time, all the time, all the time. And we, we almost, if we're honest with ourselves, fall into a trap of actually mocking hope. We mock hope. And we, because it's more comfortable 
and easier emotionally for us, we embrace hopelessness. We embrace it. This is just my lot. It's just, it's, it's just like gonna be, life's just going to be hard. It's just always going to be like this. Never going to experience anything else. Because this feels easier, right? Coming and like hugging the coffins of our lives feels a lot easier than looking for an empty tomb all the time. There's less disappointment here. There's pain, but it seems like there's less pain. I have to imagine that that time for the disciples, those, those looking upon the reality of what Jesus was going through and then, and then seeing him being taken off of the cross, down from the cross, and that, that, they, that there was this sense of finality about their circumstances that they were, they were just coming to accept. Because if you look at the way they reacted and acted after the death of Jesus, it was not just like, it was not this, okay, now we're just waiting. Now we're just waiting for him to come back just like he said he was. No, it was like this fear. As we, if you come on Sunday morning, we're going to talk all about the disbelief that they had, right? Disbelief that Jesus was really resurrected? Disbelief? Like, no, they, were, they had accepted the reality of the finality of Jesus' death. They had embraced hopelessness because of everything that they had seen and experienced. And they ran for their lives, hid away from everyone that they knew, because I think, one, they were afraid. Two, they were ashamed and embarrassed that they had... They said, well, yeah, this Jesus guy, he's the Messiah. And you just wait. And you just wait. And now he's dead in a tomb. And they're like, it's just my life. This is just how it is. They embraced the tomb. They embraced death as the hard pill that they were now forced to swallow. Because like, like us, they, the, only, the only thing that they saw in a symbol like this was death. They had, no, they had no seed planted in them that, that this was anything other than hopelessness. That this was anything other than death. And so to be sitting there in that moment, watching the, watching the stone be rolled over the tomb, there was this incredible sense of 
hopelessness. He's dead. Everything that we had imagined, everything that we had thought, everything that we had been promised, everything I imagined about my life, every dream that I had, every aspiration about my family or my relationships or my, you know, like my, my career, my health, my financial stability, right? Had it all, but now it's gone. It's just not there. And we just let the finality of that wash over us and we bathe in the hopelessness of that. Here's perhaps the most significant truth tonight is that life is always the most hopeless right before hope comes pouring in. Life is always the worst immediately immediately before the moment that the thing that comes crashing over the bow is hope is life what's necessary in that moment between hopelessness and hope is this. It's just like a, ready? Hold your breath. Just hold on. Just hold on. Hold your breath, right? And count to three. Just hold your breath. Count to three. Pray with me for a moment. So worship team, you can come back up. Heavenly Father, it seems so strange to be in church and to uh, talking to be talking only about hopelessness <laughs> and pain and betrayal and injustice and being shamed and mocked and ridiculed and nailed to a cross and dead. It seems so foreign to be asking. Questions like, where are you, God? And while we certainly don't compare our circumstances to that which Jesus experienced, 
We all sit in the same spot of asking in the midst of our own seasons of hopelessness, Lord, are you there? Are you listening? Are you moving? Are you willing to act? Father, it seems completely impossible to celebrate hope, to celebrate new life, to celebrate eternity if we have not stared in the face hopelessness. If we have not stared in the face the darkest nights of our souls, if we have not stared right in the face of every broken dream, every misstep, every bad decision, every wrong direction, Lord, and although we may have been, we may be tempted to embrace the hopelessness of what our life has become, Lord, let us see the glimmer of hope that comes when we wait, when we trust. Lord, and even up until that very last moment where we still believe that we're going to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint the dead body of Jesus, that we would be surprised by hope. Surprise us, Lord. If we can't imagine what hope would look like for us, if we can't imagine what new life would look like for us, Lord, surprise us. Break us from our embrace to hopelessness. Break us from our embrace to the dead life that comes out of a coffin. Lord, and free us to embrace life that comes from death. We put to death We put to death everything that you put to death for us. You have nailed it to the cross with you, Lord. We put the hammer down. We're not trying to take it back. Lord, save us. Give us hope. Not wishful thinking, but the promise of eternity. In Jesus' name. Amen.